The following is a message by Pastor Brian Tallman at Westminster Seminary, California. The statements, views, and opinions presented in this message are those of the speaker and do not necessarily reflect and are not endorsed by the opinions of Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or about Westminster Seminary, California, please visit us online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. That's online at www.wscal.edu or call us at 888-480-8474. We are very pleased to have with us uh, this morning Reverend Brian Tallman, who is pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church in La Mesa, a PCA congregation. That congregation has long been a good friend of the seminary, an encourager of the seminary, an encourager of seminary students, uh, an encourager of one of our most distinguished alumna, uh, Brian's wife, Andrea. So we welcome Brian to bring us God's word this morning. Greetings. Thank you for having me, and I bring uh, greetings to you from New Life Presbyterian Church in La Mesa. We have been uh, encouraged and benefited from the ministry of the seminary, and we we thank God for what, what's going on here and what you're doing here. So thank you for having me. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to the ninth chapter of Mark's Gospel this morning, Mark chapter 9, as we meditate upon just a few verses here in this ninth chapter. Verses 33 through 37. This is God's word. They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. We could perhaps spend a little bit of time talking about how the culture thinks about greatness and the culture that we find ourselves immersed in, but time restrictions are here before us this morning, so it is appropriate for us to ask and to think what greatness looks like in the Christian life and in the church. It's important for you to know just sort of on a broad scale here of how Mark divides his gospel by way of reminder. The first roughly eight chapters, all the way through verse 26 of chapter 8, deal with Jesus' ministry in Galilee. And then in chapter 8, 27, Jesus begins to set his face toward Jerusalem. And Mark records that all the way through the 16th chapter. That's important for us to know because in this second section of Mark's gospel, Jesus predicts his death three times. Three times on the way to Jerusalem, he tells his disciples that he is going to Jerusalem and he is going to give his life for the world. If you'll let your eyes look over at verse 31 of chapter 8, you hear the first one here where we read that he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. We find that again in the 10th chapter, if you'll let your eyes look over at chapter 10, verse 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, 
and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And interestingly enough, also Jesus predicts his death right before the words that we just heard read in chapter 9, verses 33 to 37. In verses 30 through 32, Jesus there again predicts his death to his disciples. What is most interesting to me is not that Jesus predicts his death these three times in this latter section of Mark's gospel, but what's most interesting to me is the way the disciples respond to this. In chapter 8, you'll remember, this is Peter pulling Jesus aside, hearing Jesus predict his death, And we read that Peter rebukes him. Jesus, it's not appropriate for you to speak like this. In chapter 10, we hear of James and John's response. Jesus, since you've predicted your death, who is going to be the greatest among us? Jesus, we want to have first place. Give us a a good seat there. And here in chapter 9, we hear them debating and discussing on the way after hearing Jesus' prediction of his death. It is striking as we read this that all of the responses to Jesus' predictions are selfish articulations for greatness. I think one of the reasons Mark presents this for us is because it pictures for us the utter and complete humiliation of the Son of God. Uh, It's to be expected that the foes of Jesus will hate him But it is surprising as we read in Mark's gospel that even his friends turn on him. Jesus is predicted as being, as presented as being utterly lonely and humiliated as he moves toward Jerusalem. And that is why I chose smitten, stricken, and afflicted. Friends through fear, his cause disowning. Foes insulting, his distress. Christ's life was indeed a life of cross-bearing. As Calvin said, while he dwelt on earth, he was not only tried by a perpetual cross, but his whole life was nothing, nothing, nothing but a sort of perpetual cross. And so we rightly understand that if they would have understood the significance of Christ's death, they would not have been jockeying for position in the way that they were. Here we have Jesus speaking of his self-surrender. Here we have Jesus speaking of counting the cost, and we find the disciples jockeying for position. Sounds a little familiar. I have to admit that some of the reading that I do in the uh, church growth and some of the sermons that I hear oftentimes sound more like individuals jockeying for position, trying to build their own kingdoms rather than promote and build the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now that being said, I want to suggest to you that the disciples, while they misunderstood Jesus, we shouldn't be too hard on them because I want to suggest to you that they actually understood him almost. You should notice that in all those predictions of his death, he refers to himself as the Son of Man. The Son of Man is going to suffer. The Son of Man is going to be beaten and spit upon and die. You'll remember from Daniel chapter 7, the prediction of the Son of Man being the exalted one, the glorious one, the ruler, the one who will have a kingdom that will have no end, the one that will have dominion. And it's as if the disciples laid hold of that idea of the Son of Man and skipped right on by the cross. It's as if they really longed for glory, but they longed for glory apart from the cross. They had a hard time doing what many of us have a hard time doing. They had a hard time conflating Isaiah 53 and Daniel chapter 7. They had a hard time bringing together in their minds the suffering servant with the exalted king. And yet the Lord Jesus does so perfectly here and in other places in Mark's gospel. We have, indeed, I want to suggest to you, a hard time doing the same thing 
as often we seek the glory apart from the cross. And the Lord Jesus Christ conflates these two passages perfectly, the suffering servant and the exalted king. The disciples had no doubt been influenced by the spirit of their age and by the culture. They had, uh, as William Lane suggests, been impregnated by the tempter of their culture. As James Edwards has suggested, they had imbibed of the wine of rank and placement and self-importance. It's interesting if you think about it how uh, the culture can cause us to and produce in us a reading of the Bible that passes over certain texts more quickly than perhaps we should. And here we find the disciples doing the very thing. Passing over the suffering servant. Passing over passages like Isaiah 53. And lingering over Daniel chapter 7. Longing for the glory. And wanting their position there in the kingdom. I want to suggest to you again that it doesn't take too much effort to find that uh, this is even taking place in the church. That in many quarters of the church we have been impregnated with the spirit of our culture. And that books on leadership, books on what it means to be a servant in the church look a lot more like what the world suggests than what Christ suggests here. It's interesting, I went to my uh, 10-year reunion a couple years ago for high school. And I joked around after the reunion that if we could have had badges on our suits and on our dresses that answered three questions, what zip code we lived in, how big our house was, and how much we made a year, then the room would be pretty much silent. There'd really be nothing to talk about. It's interesting to me, though, as I think about what that looks like into the church. It's a little different into the church, but it's not all that different. When I go to a pastor's conference or when I meet another pastor, the first question is, what's your name? The second question is, how big's your church? Because everybody knows that you can tell a lot about a pastor, in fact, all the important things of a pastor, by how large his church is. Because if you're a business person, you take your budget from $1 million to $10 million, from $10 million to $100 million, you're successful. And if you take your church from four hundred to 4000 of course, you are the guy we need to listen to. But I wonder how much of this is just plain old worldliness. I wonder how far we have departed from what Jesus says here in Mark chapter 9, where he calls the greatest to be the servant of all, where he calls those who would long to be first actually to be last. Vernon Grounds, who was the uh, president of Denver Seminary and now is the chancellor, wrote almost 20 years ago in a provocative way, I'm honestly afraid that American evangelicalism is guilty of idolatry. It is bowing down, if I might borrow a biting phrase from philosopher William James, before the bitch goddess of success. It is worshiping at the shrine of sanctified or unsanctified statistics and the idolatrous spirit that has affected Christian service. As disciples of Jesus Christ, too many of us are sinfully concerned with size, the size of sanctuaries, the size of salaries, the size of Sunday schools. Too many of us are sinfully preoccupied with statistics about budgets and buildings and buses and baptisms. I say it bluntly, too many of us American evangelicals are worshiping the bitch goddess of success. And so Jesus pulls his disciples along in the context that they're jockeying for position and their desire to be great and teaches them that actually his way is far different. But it's important for us to realize that this is not just Jesus' message, but that this is Jesus' mission. 
this is not just Jesus' message, but this is his mission. If you let your eyes look over at chapter 10, verse 42, we hear Jesus articulate this for us very, very clearly. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Those are staggering verses, and those are the gospel. That is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the mystery of the gospel, that Jesus comes to serve us, that Jesus serves us by laying down his life, and that Jesus gives himself for us, that we then might love our neighbors as ourselves and give ourselves to others. Plato put it well, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? That is oftentimes the feeling that resonates within us. How can a man be happy if he has to serve one, someone else? And Jesus turns that on its head, and Jesus says he came to serve us. He came to serve us in the giving of his life for ours. And that is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it is humbling as we ponder it, as it should be. And it should propel us forth in renewed service and renewed vigor for the service of his church, and for the advancement of his kingdom. Let us pray together. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray, O Lord, that you would make in us to be servants of your church. We pray, O Lord, that the magnitude of Jesus serving us would grip us and that would renew our obedience to you and to him. We thank you for this time and ask your blessing now to rest upon us as we depart. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Copyright 2009, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this broadcast on our website is preferred.